Hey everyone, it's Jim Warren, Jimbo, from the Hello Jimbo Speaking Podcast and Live Digging Deeper Cafes. First, I want to welcome you to the 2021 Summer of Review. Weekly throughout this summer, I will add one of the 21 episodes of the podcast we have already published. Why? Well, many of you may not have heard the most important ones. Others of you may need a review. Some of you may be joining us for the first time. If so, hang on, it's a wild ride. Then, each Sunday evening, I will add the Digging Deeper Cafe, where we discuss the episode you just reviewed. Next, I want to let you know that we will be back in September with brand new episodes of both the Hello Jimbo Speaking Podcast and the Digging Deeper Cafe. Finally, please let this summer be a time where your life honors and glorifies your Father through the faith that produces obedience. Settle for nothing less. Why? Father settles for nothing less. So here we go with this week's review of one of the most important episodes of the Hello Jimbo Speaking Podcast. Let's get radical. Hello, Jimbo speaking. Welcome to our listener-supported Hello, Jimbo Speaking podcast. Today, Jimbo will be sharing another one of his super impactful stories from the front lines of ministry, the next provocative installment of Inside Jimbo's Head, and a brand new Laugh with a Punch one-minute comedy sketch from Lifeline Productions. Hey, Jimbo, why don't you fill in our listeners with the details? Hey, Riri. In today's episode, we're going to hear about what happens to people who are victims of the easy believism pandemic in the culturized church. We'll hear about this in this episode's Stories from the Front Lines of Ministry, entitled Lessons Ignored. Here's a question for you. Have you ever told someone that they needed to change the direction of their lives when, in reality, you needed to change the direction of your life? We will see the result of that in this week's one-minute comedy skit with a punch from Frontline Productions entitled Change Course. Then we will start getting down to the nitty-gritty of cultural Christianity versus kingdom Christianity when I open up my head one more time. In this episode, we will start by looking at a passage of scripture that shows just how radical kingdom Christianity is in the life of a Jesus follower. Hey, look at this. There's a note from Hershimer laying on my desk. Let's see what it says. Dear Jimbo, Haha and Hershimer are going on a vacation for a few weeks to visit Haha's parents? But Jimbo, worry not. All Hershimer's buddies still hanging out in Jimbo's bottom desk drawer to cheer Jimbo on. See you soon, Hershimer and Haha. Wow. Hershimer is going to meet Haha's parents. Boy, oh boy, things must be getting serious with those two. Oh well, things should be a little quieter around here for a few episodes. So, anyway, Riri, let's get the ball rolling. What do you say? Okay, Jimbo. As I said before, folks, this is a listener-supported Hello, Jimbo Speaking podcast. Your host is Jim Warren, author, motivational speaker, pastor, teacher, high-risk youth advocate, and life coach. But most of all, he's an all-around wild and crazy guy. So, without any further ado, from behind a cheap microphone in the dynamic life development studios in the thriving metropolis of Wheatfield, Indiana— Okay, I guess if you count all the heads of corn and soybeans, you can call it a thriving metropolis. Here's Jimbo! All right, all right. Wow. 
great to be back with you for another episode of the Hello Jimbo Speaking Podcast. Do you remember the purpose statement of this podcast? That's okay. I didn't expect you to remember. Anyway, it's a big mouthful, and I know I haven't mentioned it for a while, but this is important, and I want to remind you of it before we move on. Here we go. The purpose of this podcast is to bring about the realization of the radical redirection of relational realities required for the revitalization of conventional Christianity, its citizens, and communities, one person at a time. I know, you remember, it's a mouthful, but that is exactly what needs to happen in the church today. However, it will never happen there if it doesn't start with me, and it doesn't start with you. So my question is, how are these podcasts affecting your lifestyle? I hope they are making you rethink some long-held beliefs and customs. Yet, I really hope they are doing more than that in your life. I hope they are driving you to more alone time with Father, and that while you are there, you are spending time in introspection and confession. I also hope you are meditating on some of the passages of Scripture I shared with you over the past 14 episodes. Here is the reason I bring this up. As I was putting together the practical lesson part of today's Inside Jimbo's Head segment, Father began to convict me of changes I need to make in my life. As I went before him, I really felt a greater change taking place in my inner person. I sure would hate to have you, my special listeners, miss out on such a life-changing experience. So I want to ask you to let me know how these podcasts affect your life. You can go to the Hello Jimbo Speaking website at jimbospeaking.org. On the Contact Us page, there is a place to leave your comments. You also can go to anchor.fm forward slash Jimbo Speaking and leave a voice message for me as well. And while you're there at anchor.fm, please click on the support button and choose either the $0.99, $4.99, or $9.99 option to support my coaching discipling ministry to high-risk youth. I bring this up because I really do not want to drop the number of these young people Father puts in my life. Most of the parents of these kids can't afford to pay for these services, and quite frankly, I find it hard to ask people to pay for ministry who are not part of the kingdom of God. So, without any further ado, let's get rolling with this week's story from the front lines of ministry entitled, Lessons Ignored. This story from the front lines of ministry does not come from the halls of a juvenile detention center or the back alleys of hometown America. It comes from a small rural community and carries a very, very significant message for the conventional American church. A 39-year-old man sat in the cab of his pickup truck in the parking lot of an antique mall, sobbing like a baby. A few weeks before sitting sobbing in his pickup truck, the young man had lost his ideal job. His old nemesis that had plagued him for 29 years had raised its ugly head once again. A diabetic, and in his case a very brittle diabetic, has a tough time with stress changes in their life. He had taken this job because it would allow him to work with troubled youth, his dream job. 
He knew he would have to work six months of midnight shifts, but he just hoped that this time, maybe just this time, it would not affect his diabetes. Yet, once again, that old nemesis came galloping up like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, throwing off his body chemistry. One more job down the drain. This left him in a very precarious situation. He had already used up all of his unemployment, and, as in most homes across this country, the bills just kept piling high. The night before this opening scene, he had laid them out on the kitchen table. He knew he had to do something drastic. His family had to eat. He went to a box he kept under the bed and pulled out an old cigar box his father had given him many years ago. It contained arrowheads his great-grandmother had collected when she was a young girl. He knew his father's desire was for him to pass them down to his son someday, yet drastic times called for extreme measures. He took these precious items downstairs and locked them away in the glove compartment of his pickup truck. What was his plan? He planned to take them to one of the many antique malls throughout the area and sell them. The next morning, he woke up early as usual and helped his son get ready. Soon they were running down the stairs, getting into the pickup truck and driving off for school. They laughed and joked with each other all the way. When his son jumped out of the truck and ran into the school, he watched with pride in his eyes. Yet, just as quickly, those positive feelings of pride turned once again to worry and concern. Father, please help me, he prayed. Show me how to take care of my family. He pulled away from the curb and began the journey to the first antique mall. When he arrived, he reached over, unlocked the glove box, and prayed his father would never learn what he was about to do. Thirty minutes later, he walked out of the antique mall with the same box in his hand, still containing the family treasures. No luck. He had the same fate at the next two antique malls. As he pulled away from the last mall, he was beside himself. He didn't know what he was going to do. He cried out, You got to be kidding, God. I was even willing to sell these family heirlooms. What do you want from me anyway? All of a sudden, he saw it in front of him. One last antique mall. He had forgotten all about that one. He pulled into the parking lot, turned off the truck, and reached for the precious cigar box one last time. Walking into the mall, he noticed it was empty except for a small group of older people off in one corner. He approached them with a big smile. Anyone here interested in buying some old arrowheads? They informed him that there was one person who was usually at the mall who would give a reasonable price for old arrowheads, but she was in Florida for the next two months. He looked dejected. One of the old ladies asked, Are you okay, son? He explained to them what he was trying to do. I guess I'll have to just find some other way, he informed them, turning around as he walked out the door. He was about three quarters of the way to his pickup truck when he heard a voice. Young man, he somewhat ignored it. Young man, the voice was even more emphatic this time. He turned and saw one of the older ladies walking towards him. As she got closer to him, he noticed she was holding something in her hand. It looked like money. Ma'am, I can't take money from you, he exclaimed. Now listen to me, young man, the older lady retorted. A few years ago, I was in the same situation as you. I did not know what to do, so I prayed, and God sent an answer through a person I didn't even know. This person gave me money that really made a big difference and began to turn things around for me. Now it's my turn to return the favor. But, but ma'am, he tried to explain, I don't even know you. Do you know God, she asked. Yes, replied the young man. Then take it up with him. He's the one who told me to give this to you. She reached out and gently took his hand and placed what he could clearly see was at least a $100 bill. He began to cry, hugged her, and thanked her. She smiled and walked off. 
he got into his pickup truck and looked at the money. As he unfolded it, he realized that there was more than just one $100 bill. In fact, there were five. The tears kept coming and coming. Thank you, Father, he cried. Please help me never to doubt you again. As he pulled himself together, he locked the cigar box with the arrowheads away in the glove compartment, started the engine, and began to drive back to the school to pick up his son. When his young son jumped into the truck, he could see his dad had been crying. What's wrong, Dad? The young boy inquired. The 39-year-old man began to tell his son the story of what just happened to him. When he finished, he asked his son, What do you think about that? His 12-year-old son looked straight into his eyes and said, Oh, I expected something like that to happen to you today. What do you mean, son? He questioned. The 39-year-old man's 12-year-old son began to share with him that last night he had seen all the bills sitting on the table and knew that his dad was in trouble. As soon as he got to the youth group that evening, he pulled a group of his friends together and they prayed that God would begin to meet the needs of his dad and help him pay the bills. You see, Dad, I knew God was going to take care of you today. Later that evening, the 39-year-old man called his father and told him the story. His father wasn't happy that he had considered selling the arrowheads, but was thrilled with the lesson God had taught his son and his grandson that day. You know, son, there's just one thing I want you to think long and hard about, his father began. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. This means that you need to learn to be faithful to Him at all times. When He performs a miracle like you just experienced, it's time to rejoice. But it also means that when He has you in hard times, when the answers don't seem to be coming, you need to trust that those are the times that He's chiseling you into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. He's doing that so that His love might flow through you more freely, whether you're facing good times or bad times. Learn to honor God in the darkness so that you can praise Him with integrity in the light. However, that is not the end of the story. I would like to say the rest of the story is an encouraging one, but it is just the opposite. It is sad and happens all too often in the culturized church of the 21st century. Over the years, things did turn even more difficult for both the young man and his son. Neither of them heeded the words of their father and grandfather. Today, both live lives based on their experiences, which they interpreted as God not being faithful and thus not dependable or real. While neither of them would say they believe that today, their lives dramatically tell a different story. And easy believism captures another two victims. I'll be back in a moment. Calling the unknown approaching vessel, you are on a collision course with us. Please change your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Uh, recommend you change your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid collision. When we are told to change course, we have a choice to make. Do we change or continue on the same path? We are a naval ship. This is the captain speaking. I say again, divert your course. No, I say again, divert your course. Jesus gave us a choice to make when he said, You are from below, I am from above. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Sir, we could change course here. We have the right of way. I am not changing our course. Unknown vessel, this is an aircraft carrier. We are a large warship. Divert your course now. Uh, this is a lighthouse. Your call. When it comes to Jesus, what choice will you make? Another message from Lifeline Productions. 
located on the web at lifelinepro.com. Well, there you go. It's great to have you all back in my head once again as we begin to get into the nitty-gritty of how Kingdom Christianity is the antithesis of the cultural Christianity we see taking place all around us. However, before we get there, I want to say a few words about this episode's Stories from the Front Lines of Ministry segment and the one-minute Laugh with a Punch comedy skit from Lifeline Productions. Every time I listen to that comedy skit, I have to laugh. Of course, that laughter doesn't last long when I apply it to our story from the front lines of ministry. You see, my friends, one of the biggest problems with conventional Christianity, including and especially the evangelical variety, is that the gospel is almost always presented in the context of going to heaven. And I believe that almost in almost always is a gift. I know I have talked about this in the past. Still, easy believism has so inundated the modern church and has become so pandemic that our story from the front lines of ministry is not an isolated case, but the rule rather than the exception. If you don't remember the condition of the modern church, including the evangelical church, which we talked about in episode one of this series, you need to go back and re-listen to that episode. Those facts are the foundation on which I built this entire series. If you do that, and you also listen to what Christian leaders are saying, especially on the local level, you will clearly see the attitude of the captain of the aircraft carrier well represented in how they are dealing with these realities. If you only look at how the gospel is presented, you need very few other reasons, though there are many for this condition. Accumulatively, these problems lead to the results we saw in our story from the front lines of ministry. When it comes to presenting the gospel, we are often so desirous to see a person quote-unquote be saved that we forget all about the counting the cost questions. Jesus asked counting the cost questions regularly to people who came to him and asked to be his disciple. We have also seen in the way most present the gospel that discipleship and often the lordship of Jesus is something supplementary to quote-unquote getting saved. The gospel is no longer about Jesus the Messiah, establishing the kingdom of God and our transference into his kingdom, living under his lordship when we become a disciple. It is not about the call upon our lives to bring glory to God by living as Jesus lived. It's about quote-unquote getting saved, and going to heaven. Along the way to this final destination, we expect God to make our journey as easy as possible. Even when we hit hard times, we look for Jesus to soften the hard edges. There is no concept of having communion with the sufferings of Christ and living in conformity to his death, not even in our concepts of authentic ministry. Because we focus the gospel on going to heaven, we rarely talk to those who are desirous of becoming Jesus' disciples about changing direction. In the Bible, this is called repentance. If we ever approach that subject, we let people off the hook by saying we must be willing to change direction. God forbid if we talk about obedience. We are so afraid of losing the solo gratia, or solely by grace aspect of salvation. Often this leads to us allowing people to just pray this prayer who are not ready for the radical change authentic grace-produced faith makes in their lives. 
The emphasis is on as long as we are on our way to heaven. While there are a few scriptures that seem to connect salvation to going to heaven, the lion's share of the entirety of scripture is the link between salvation and the kingdom of God. This was established and lost in the garden, promised and exemplified through the entire Old Testament, and fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. It is where we, who have an authentic faith in Jesus, live and find our new cultural realities. We will look deeper into this in an upcoming episode. However, I want to make one point. The story of the 39-year-old man and his 12-year-old son exemplifies what happens when people are not told about the radical change in direction that takes place when one yields to Jesus as Savior and Lord. The result? They keep heading towards the rocks like the naval aircraft carrier and present-day church leadership, not realizing they are heading for disaster. They often think people and circumstances need to change around them, rather than the radical attitude adjustment and the lifestyle change that takes place with an authentic, active faith in Christ. This goes for not only the Christian life, but authentic Christian ministry as well. Speaking of a radical attitude adjustment, let's take a look at today's scripture, which speaks of Paul's life example when he made the radical break with his past to become a disciple of Jesus. in our series, before we start looking at specific areas where Kingdom Christianity and cultural Christianity differ, and I mean differ with a capital D, we will always take a look at a significant passage of Scripture. In the next three episodes, we will look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Then we will deal with the difference between Kingdom Christianity and cultural Christianity when it comes to the concept of salvation. Today, I hope to accomplish several things. First, I want to talk about some preliminary things we need to consider before jumping into this passage, and for that matter, most of the passages we will look at as we finish this series. These will include the primary ways the Bible teaches us about Christ, His kingdom, and the way we are to live in that kingdom. I also want to introduce you to what I call my intensified version of the scriptures, which will be our guide in most of these studies. I will also share with you where you can find not only these intensified versions of the scripture we are studying, but also the work I did to get to these results. Finally, we will try to get through at least verses 7 and 8 of this intense, critical, and essential passage concerning the radical way life in Christ affects people with authentic, active faith. So, let's get started. The first thing I want to bring to your attention is how the Bible teaches us. There are three primary ways the scriptures teach us about Jesus, his kingdom, and how we are to live in that kingdom. The first is by direct command. Most Christians realize that the Old Covenant is full of commandments. In fact, keeping these commandments or laws is how the Old Covenant people lived their lives. This is quite different from how the New Covenant people are to live their lives. However, I am often horrified by how many Christians do not realize how many things we are commanded to do in the New Covenant. For most, we think keeping commandments from God is not a part of grace. 
They often tell me, I accepted Jesus into my life as my Savior. I know I am to do my best, but I know I am going to fail. And when I do, I'm still going to heaven. Okay, okay. I know I beat that dog to death with a stick far too many times. However, while there may be a sliver of truth in that statement, I shiver every time I hear someone say such a thing. Why? The attitude behind such a statement does not come from living in the Spirit, but living in the flesh. It definitely is not a biblical attitude. The second way the Bible teaches about Jesus, His kingdom, and how we are to live in that kingdom is through direct teaching. Here is where the writer lays a comprehensible series of thoughts together to develop overall principles. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, as well as the first part of most of the Pauline epistles and Jesus' Sermon from the Mount, are perfect examples of this process. Finally, the Bible teaches us about Jesus, His kingdom, and how we are to live in that kingdom through example. Over and over again, we are called to follow the example or imitate those who have an authentic, active faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul tells us to imitate his lifestyle. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says the same thing, but to imitate him as he is an imitator of Christ. By the way, both of these verses are commands. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul talks about how the Thessalonians became imitators of us and Christ. Here, the us was Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Later in chapter 2, verse 14, he talks about how the community of Jesus followers became imitators of the churches in Judea in the way they dealt with suffering. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul commands the Ephesian Christians to be imitators of God as children who are loved sacrificially. This, too, was a command. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 12, urges us to be imitators of those who inherit the promises. And Jesus, in John chapter 13, verse 15, tells his disciples that he was their example and that they should do just as he had done to them. In all these examples, we cannot say that Paul or Silas or Timothy or the early church or even Jesus were so unique that we cannot today live the way they lived. If we do, we are merely following the example of the culturized church and making excuses. By now, you should know one of my favorite sayings, no more excuses, whether they are theological or based on cultural differences. We also can never afford to think that one of these three key ways the Bible teaches us about Jesus, His kingdom, and how to live in that kingdom are of a higher importance than another. They are all part of the inspired, inerrant, revealed Word of God. We are about to study a description Paul gives of his attitude and lifestyle. If you do not believe the examples I gave you from Scripture call you to obediently be an imitator of his attitude and lifestyle, then this final example should place the last nail in the coffin. Soon after Paul talks about his attitude and lifestyle in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, he gives this command to the Philippians and us. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Just in case you're using the old excuse that this is something you have to grow into, you must realize that the Greek verb here, which is translated keep your eyes on, has a middle voice. This means the subject, brothers, initiates the action and participates in the results of an action. 
not an outside force, but the subject. The verb that is translated join in imitating me has an active voice. This means the same subject, brothers, is the initiator of the action. Again, not an outside force such as the Holy Spirit, but the subject themselves. Both have an imperative mood, giving them, in this case, the power of a command from a person in authority. That should clear up any excuse. The idea here is just do it. You just do it, not grow into it. The second thing I need to share with you before we jump into our study of Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, is what I call my intensified version of the scriptures. This intensified version will become the basis of our discussion as we study this passage and each passage we look at in this final section of our present series. The Cambridge Dictionary defines intensify in the following way, to become greater, more serious, or more extreme, or to make something do this. Now, I do not believe we can make Scripture any greater than it already is, or even more serious. For that matter, I do not think we can make it any more extreme. Frankly, the teachings of the New Covenant are already radically extreme for all people, but especially those of us living in 21st century America. With that said, the Greek language is more expressive and has a more profound, robust sense to it than one word in English or short phrase can convey. This is especially true when it comes to Greek verbs. Thus often, I have given a fuller meaning to words by using either multiple similar understandings of the word, a greater sense of what each verb means, or my definition of such terms such as love and faith. These definitions of terms like love and faith come from looking at the full usage of these terms throughout the New Covenant. I began writing these intensified versions for contemplative meditation on God's Word. Yet, I have found, once a person gets used to them, they help bring out a fuller understanding of passages I am teaching. In order to help you understand these intensified versions, I need to give you a short, simple, basic lesson on Greek verbs. There are three critical elements to a Greek verb. Each of these is very important in understanding the intent of the author. They are also essential in understanding what the original readers heard when they read the books of the New Covenant. The first element is the verb's tense. Unlike English, there are five basic tenses in Biblical Greek. However, what is called the aspect of the verb is far more critical to the Greek writer than when an action took place. The aspect of a verb refers to the kind of action that was taking place. The first thing that came to the mind of a Greek writer or reader was, is this action continuous? Is it once and done and finished? Is it speaking of an ongoing action in the past with no reference to the present? Or is it something completed at a specific time in the past with its results continuing into the present? Understanding this is essential in bringing clarity to the author's intent. The second element of a Greek verb is its voice. The voice of a Greek verb highlights the relationship of the subject to the action of the verb. Again, in the mind of a Greek writer or reader, the question is, who performs the action or accomplishes the activity, the subject of the sentence or an outside force? And if the subject does act, do they participate in the results of the action? Finally, the third element of a Greek verb is its mood. 
The mood highlights the attitude of the verb. Is it an act of certainty? Did it? Is it? Or will it definitely take place? An act of possibility, a command, or a wish or desire. Just this simple example of Greek verbs, especially the aspect of the verb, gives you a clear idea of the robust nature of the Greek language and why one word in English could never convey these ideas. This will become understandable when we look at the intensified version of each verse we are studying. The first question that will come to your mind when I read my intensified version will be, why did you make it so long? Understanding the things I have shared with you about the biblical Greek language is the answer to that question. Because I try to give a real sense of all these elements of Greek verbs and a fuller understanding of each word, my sentences in the intensified version become quite long. Because of this, if a verse says if something happens or is true or is a desire and two or three things flow from it, I split these up. I split them up by restating the action, truth, or desire that is necessary for the result before I state each result. I believe this makes my intensified version more understandable. However, the trade-off? Well, they just become even longer. Because the intensified version that I write can seem complicated the first time you hear it, I would like to suggest something to make this much more manageable. I strongly recommend that you go to jimbospeaking.org. At the bottom of the landing page, you will see the word episodes. Click on that word. There you will find a link to each episode of the Hello Jimbo Speaking podcast, a description of that episode, and a place to download a PDF transcript of the Inside Jimbo's Head segment of that episode. Scroll down to this episode, episode 15, and download that PDF file. I have added at the end of the transcript the English Standard Version of our text, my intensified version of it, and a copy of the work I did to create the intensified version. I know you will find this very, very helpful. In fact, if you do not pause this podcast and do this right now, you will more than likely get lost in the weeds. So now, let's get into the scriptures. I want to read to you Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 in the English Standard Version, and then I will read my intensified version of these same passages. By the way, here is where that PDF transcript add-on will be very beneficial. Here we go. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And now, for my intensified version of this passage, here we go. Are you ready? But whatever things were continuously taking place in the past, which gave me the benefit of an advantage, those things I have already in the past taken into account and have taken authority over them as something damaged, a detriment, and a loss. I have in all certainty in the past considered them as damaged, a detriment, and a loss in a way that continues to allow me to presently consider them as damaged, a detriment, and a loss. 
This has happened because of and through the benefit of a partnership with the Messiah and his kingdom. On top of those things and added to them in an accumulative way, I am also now in all certainty as a lifestyle, continuously, habitually taking into account and having authority over and considering all things, and I mean the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality, to be continuously, habitually damaged, a detriment and a loss, for the benefit of partnership in a continuous, habitual lifestyle in the supreme, superior, surpassing worth of a full, complete, intimate, experiential knowledge of Messiah Jesus, my Lord, and his kingdom. It is because of, and through this benefit of partnership with him, in this full, complete, intimate, experiential knowledge of him as Lord, that I have already in the past, once and for all, with all certainty, forfeited and cast away all, and I mean the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality. In fact, I am now continuously, habitually, as a lifestyle, taking into account and having authority over them, considering them as worthless and detestable refuse, like the excrement of animals. I do this continuously and habitually, as a lifestyle, to the end that I might gain the Messiah and his kingdom as the dominating power over my entire being and every circumstance. I also am, in all certainty, as a lifestyle, continuously and habitually, taking into account and having authority over and considering all, and I mean the whole of every kind and variety of things in their totality, to be continuously, habitually damaged, a detriment, and a loss, and as worthless and detestable scraps to be thrown out to the dogs, so that I might, once and for all, be discovered, be recognized, and show myself as being in Him, the Messiah, and His kingdom. In other words, so that I might be discovered and recognized and show myself as wholly joined in such a way that he is the place where I live and move and the one to whom my power and influence are subject. However, I am not continuously and habitually as a lifestyle wearing, possessing, or owning a righteous condition that yields feelings, thinkings, and actions in conformity to the character of God, which emanates from myself or my own legalistic consciousness, that is, my own ability to be obedient to the commands of God. However, I am, continuously and habitually, as a lifestyle, wearing and possessing a righteous condition that yields feelings, thinkings, and actions in conformity to the character of God that is acceptable to God, which is through a firm foundational conviction that all God said and did, says and does, and promises to do is true and truthful, leading to a lifestyle of obedience. This righteous condition, which I continuously, habitually, as a lifestyle, wear and possess, is in and through the Messiah and his kingdom, for he is the one in whom I live and move, and the one to whom my power and influence are subject. This righteous condition, acceptable to God, that yields feelings, thinkings, and actions in conformity to the character of God, finds its origin and emanates from God based on faith. That is, a firm foundational conviction that all God said and did, says and does, and promises to do is true and truthful, leading to a lifestyle of obedience. I am continuously and habitually, as a lifestyle, wearing and possessing this righteous condition, acceptable to God that yields feelings, thinkings, and actions in conformity to the character of God, and it finds its origin and proceeds from God based on a firm foundational conviction that all God said and did, says and does, and promises to do is true and truthful, leading to a lifestyle of obedience, so I once and for all fully, completely, intimately, experientially know Him and once and for all fully, completely, intimately, experientially know the miraculous, powerful, abundant, mighty, innate force of his resurrection. 
and once and for all fully, completely, intimately, experientially know partnership with, participation in, and communion with his sufferings, so that I am now continuously, habitually assimilated into and conformed to his death as my lifestyle. I do not assimilate into or conform to his death through my own self-knowledge, power, or way of life, but am being acted upon by this full, complete, intimate, experiential knowledge of the Messiah and his kingdom, and by this full, complete, intimate, experiential knowledge of the dynamic power of his resurrection, and by this full, complete, intimate, experiential participation in his sufferings, which is the result of continuously and habitually, as a lifestyle, wearing and possessing this righteous condition acceptable to God that yields feelings, thinkings, and actions in conformity to the character of God. Even this righteous condition finds its origin and proceeds not from me, but from God, and is based on the firm foundational conviction that all God said and did, says and does, and promises to do is true and truthful, leading to a lifestyle of obedience. <laughs> Told you it was a mouthful. Man, that was a long introduction. However, I think without it, you would get lost in the weeds as we look at the text we are studying. So, let's get down to business. The first thing I want to do is give you an outline of the flow taking place in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Basically, this passage is a classic example of a person giving up one thing or category of things as a way of life because they wish to participate in something of a higher or more exceptional value. We see this concept throughout the pages of the New Covenant. Let's look at just one example given by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, Jesus speaks in these terms concerning the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Please always remember, when the new covenant speaks of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it is speaking of the same thing. It is speaking of the kingdom that Jesus, as the Messiah, established. It is not speaking of where we go when we die. Now, not only do we see Jesus speaking of the great sacrifice one must make for the kingdom of God, but we also see this kind of thing happening every day around us. Think of the soldiers who lay aside their safety to protect their brother soldiers or win a victory. Then think about the first responders who lay aside their safety to save us. Everyday people give up their time, energy, the quality of their relationships, and even what should be their primary purpose in life to gain financial security for a hopeful future. Of course, the most exceptional example of this attitude of Jesus is found in Philippians chapter 2. Here we learn that even though he had equality in heaven with the Father and Spirit, he emptied himself and became a servant slave, identifying with humanity and obediently going to the cross. This is precisely the example Paul gives to us in the way he approaches discipleship to Jesus and the importance of the kingdom of God. Shortly after Paul shares about the attitude that drove the actions of Jesus, he gives us his example of how the attitude of Jesus affected his life. We find this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, which we just read. 
Here we see Paul giving up not only his religious culture. Actually, this was his entire cultural way of life. However, we also see on top of that how he gave up all things because he had gained much more. The much more Paul had gained was the benefit of a partnership with Messiah Jesus in his kingdom. Having the Messiah Jesus in his kingdom is the dominating power over his entire being and every circumstance. Being discovered and recognized and showing himself as being in the Messiah in his kingdom, having a righteousness that comes through faith, not keeping the law. Finally, Paul lays all things aside because of his full, complete, intimate, experiential knowledge of Messiah Jesus, the power of the Messiah's resurrection, and communion with and participation in Messiah's sufferings, thus living a lifestyle in conformity to his death. Does that cause you to rethink how you approach your life in Christ? Does it make you rethink the way the modern churches approaches the salvation message and its methodology of ministry? How about the amount of time, energy, and finances you use to develop comfort, entertainment, adornment, and future financial security? If just that fundamental breakdown of what Paul is saying here does not cause you to rethink all these things, then guess what? You are in for a shock as we break down this section of scripture phrase by phrase. Let's start with verse 7 and its first phrase, but whatever gain I have. Here, the word gain carries with it the concept of external advantage. The word is actually plural. Thus, Paul is talking about the external gains he had, which gave him an advantage in this life. What were these things that gave Paul the benefit of an advantage? We find these in verses 4 through 6. Look at what he says about them. First, he calls them things of the flesh. However, before Paul calls them things of the flesh, he states that those in Christ do not put their confidence in the things of the flesh. Instead of placing confidence in the things of the flesh, we worship by or in the Spirit and glory or boast in and find our joy only in Jesus the Messiah. Now, all the verbs in this sentence are present tense. So, Paul is saying that those in Christ, the authentic new covenant people of God, do not continuously, habitually as a lifestyle, put confidence in or obey, trust, or yield to the things of the flesh. He is saying those authentic new covenant people of God, continuously, habitually as a lifestyle, worship Jesus the Messiah in or by the Spirit, and only glory or boast or find joy only and exclusively in Him. Did you hear what Paul is saying? He is saying only those who do not obey, trust, or yield to the flesh, but as a lifestyle worship Jesus in or by the Spirit, as well as find their joy only in Jesus, are the new covenant people of God. Did you catch the emphasis here that only those who continuously, habitually, as a lifestyle do these things are the new covenant people of God? You think it's time to put easy believism in the grave? Do you think it's time to get serious about your walk in Christ? Do you think it's time to lay aside the excuses? It is also clear from verses 3 through 6 that in verse 7, Paul is speaking of his advantage from his Jewish religion. Most importantly, we see all these things that were a part of his Judaism were taking place in the past and have nothing to do with his present life in Christ. We see this in the tense of the verb translated had. What did Paul do with the religious elements of his Judaism? He took an account of them, taking command over them, ruling over them as things that were damaged, a loss, and a detriment to his new life in Christ. 
In other words, Paul saw all of his life in Judaism and any continuation of that life as a detriment to his new life in Christ. In fact, he took in a very decisive way in the past an account of the religious and cultural elements of his Judaism, taking command over them and ruling over them as a detriment to his new life in Christ in such a way it continued to affect the way he lived his life in the present. The tense of the verb counted tells us this was a completed action in the past whose results continue into the present. This means he had already finished doing this. It was not a matter of Christian growth. It is the voice of that verb which tells us not only was it Paul who did this, but not an outside force, but he continued to participate in those results. He did not fall back into his practices nor the legalistic consciousness of Judaism. The mood of this verb tells us he did this in a very decisive manner or with all certainty. Why did Paul do this with the religious and cultural elements of his Judaism? He took this decisive action because of the benefits of his new partnership with Messiah Jesus and his kingdom. We know that Paul was talking about this because Thayer, in his Greek lexicon, tells us the Greek word translated for the sake of means for the benefit of, to become a partner of something. We know this is the reason for Paul's actions, because Strong's definitions tell us that the same Greek word indicates the channel through which this action was taken. Finally, we know that Paul saw his new partnership with the Messiah and all its benefits included his kingdom. Why? Because of the mindset of all Jews when they saw the Greek word translated Christ. All Jews were looking for the coming Messiah, not just because of him, but because of what he would do. What was the Messiah to do? Take away their sins and establish the new kingdom of God. So the term Christ, which meant the anointed one or Messiah, always in the minds of the writers of the new covenant, carried with it the concept of the kingdom he was to establish. Thus, whenever you see the word Christ, it is not just talking about Jesus, but also the new kingdom or nation he established. This understanding is essential if we are to have a proper comprehension of Scripture. It is equally vital if we want to move from a failing, culturized Christianity into the reality of God's kingdom Christianity. Look at that, my friends. The clock is ticking away, and we are quickly running out of time. By now, you should know I never get as far as I want to in our studies. Let me wrap this up by giving you what I feel is the most critical application of these truths. In the next episode, we will see that Paul's attitude towards the advantages he received in his past religious and cultural experiences extended to all things. We will develop that concept in a way that leaves us with nothing to hold on to but our partnership with Jesus and his kingdom. For now, trust me, that is what verse 8 is all about. What we see here, as Paul teaches us through his example, that becoming a Jesus follower includes making a radical departure from our cultural and religious way of life and external conformity to the law. In verse 8, we will see how Paul added to this all things. We will also see that all things means all things. Because this happened in the past and was a finished act that had continued to affect his life, we can assume correctly that this took place at or as a part of his conversion. At that time, he made a conscious accounting of all these things, saw them as detrimental to his partnership with Christ and his kingdom, and took authority over them by ruling over them. This is what conversion is all about. 
It is moving from one culture to another, one way of life to another. It is so important that we realize that because the verb translated count has a middle voice. It was Paul who actively took authority over them and ruled over them. This was not an outside force such as the Holy Spirit. The effects of this continued throughout Paul's life. Remember, Paul, just a few verses after this section of Scripture, commands the Philippians and thus us to imitate him. He also commands them to keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example they have in us. Are there people in your life who walk like this? Do you have a close enough relationship with members of your community of faith? In other words, do you spend enough time with them to know how they live their lives? How could this be Paul's attitude and how could these things happen in Paul's life, the Philippians' lives, and in our lives? First, remember Paul's description of the authentic New Covenant people of God in verse 3. He states that the actual people of God are those whose lifestyle is one of worshiping by or in the Spirit, finding joy solely in the Messiah and His kingdom, and who put no confidence, no trust in the flesh. Instead, we focus on the benefits of being in partnership with the Messiah and being in His kingdom. Does that sound like your life? Before you answer that question, realize this was not something Paul grew in throughout his life as a Jesus follower. It was a finished action in the past whose effects continued to affect his life as he wrote these words. So now, does that sound like your life? Is this what you do with your past? Is this what you do with your native culture, no matter how right it seems to be to you? Remember, next week we will see Paul has this same attitude and took the same actions over all things in his life. My friends, if this is not the case in our lives, it's time to draw into a conscious recognition of the presence of God through worship. It's time to stop finding our joy in things that bring us comfort, entertainment, adornment, and future financial security. Now is the time to boast and find joy in our partnership with Jesus and His kingdom. It's the time right now to stop putting our trust in the things of the flesh. If we do not do this right now, we will never know the reality of that partnership. We will never have a full, complete, intimate, experiential relationship with Christ and the power of His resurrection. On top of that, our ministry will be that of the culturized Christians who never live in communion with the sufferings of Christ, with their lives demonstrating His death. In other words, we will never truly have a full, complete, intimate, experiential knowledge or walk in His love as the basis of our ministry. But hey, we will get into the fullness of those things in the next episode of the Inside Jimbo's Head segment of the Hello Jimbo Speaking Podcast. So let me finish off by reminding you that in the next episode we will move into verse 8 and possibly 9 and 10. I know all of this will become crystal clear to you as we move through those verses. The question is, how will this understanding affect your life today? Sorry, I had to press that one more time. So please, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, become a support partner at either the $0.99, cent, $4.99, cent, or $9.99 cent per month level. And check out the Hello Jimbo Speaking webpage at jimbospeaking.org. When you are there, be sure to download the PDF transcript of this week's Inside Jimbo's Head. When you do that, you will get your copy of the intensified version of these passages and the work I did in developing my version of them. So, until next week, 
Go out there and by God's grace, make it a great day that honors and glorifies him through the faith that produces obedience. Do not settle for anything less. See you next week. Hey, it's Riri coming back at you. Before we sign off, I have just a few announcements. Please subscribe to this podcast today and become a part of the Jimbo Nation by setting up a monthly donation of only 99 cents, $4.99, or $9.99. Remember, if you choose the $9.99 monthly donation, you will get a 75% discount on everything at DLDU, including a lifetime membership. If you wait until after DLDU launches, that discount will drop to 33%. But hey, if you choose to support whether or not you use the discounts, you will be helping Jimbo make a huge difference in the life of some very hurting and misdirected young people. You know, the ones you hear about each week in the Stories from the Front Lines of Ministry segment. So it really is worth every penny you use to support Jimbo's ministry through the Robert Anthony West Fund, which Jimbo told you about in Robert's story from episode five. Also, I wanted to let you know about the Hello Jimbo Speaking podcast website, jimbospeaking.org. There, you can find past episodes of the Hello Jimbo Speaking podcast to download, transcripts of each Inside Jimbo's Head, a place to leave a written comment to Jimbo, as well as a place to support Jimbo's ministry to high-risk, disconnected youth and young adults. You can also sign up for a weekly sneak preview of that week's new Inside Jimbo's Head. So drop on over to jimbospeaking.org and check it out. Finally, please don't forget, Next week, Jimbo will be back with another story from the front lines of ministry, a one-minute laugh with a punch comedy skit from Lifeline Productions, and a new segment in the Cultural Christianity versus Kingdom Christianity series. So, until next week. Music